Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of the Marlboro Free Libraries podcast, the story of Marlboro, the past, present, and the future. My name is Lindsay, and I'm the adult services librarian at the Marlboro Free Library. Just some background for those tuning in for the first time. This project is funded by a Libraries Transforming Communities grant awarded to the library by the American Library Association. One of our goals in receiving this grant is to highlight and work together with local businesses in our community. Through community conversations with local business owners in Marlboro, which was part of this grant project, we realized that one way we could support our local business owners is by highlighting their stories through a podcast and as a new tour on our Discover Marlboro app. Our podcast features the individual stories of business owners in Marlboro who participated in this grant project and their insights on how the library can partner with its local business community. Tune in each week to listen as we interview a different business owner around town to hear the story of their business, why they got started, why did they choose Marlboro, their thoughts on collaborations with their local libraries, and to learn more about our small town. For more information on our Discover Marlboro app, visit marlborolibrary.org. We hope you enjoy these interviews. So today we have Gail and Amy Hepworth with us. Gail and Amy are owners of Hepworth Farms located here in Marlboro. The Hepworth family has been a part of Marlboro for several generations, so I'm pretty excited to have the opportunity to interview you both today. So I just wanted to start off by thanking you both for taking the time to sit down with us today. I know it's an extremely busy time of year for you guys, so thank you. Oh, yeah, it's our pleasure. Thank you for doing this. Of course. So for those who are new to the community or are listening from afar, can you tell us a little bit about yourselves and your family's farm? I'm Amy Hepworth. This is my twin sister, Gail Hepworth, and we run um, Hepworth Farms as, um, and it right now is a 550 acre organic vegetable farm with 400 varieties of vegetables. And it also has another business that we started in order to bring hemp, cannabis, into an agricultural crop as a part of our community. So we do operate two businesses, but our primary business is what we do is, is grow vegetables to feed people. And um, we're very, uh, very aware of the distribution of healthy food. Our focus in our business is actually increasing the alive system within the, within the soil and also to be able to feed people whether it's the food bank and people who don't have access to food or people who shop at Whole Foods. We just want the, the highest quality fruits and vegetables to be marketed to the whole region. That's part of our business, but Gail, you- Yeah, no, it's just, I wanted to get back to the historical perspective because you know, we're seventh generation farmers and Amy is the farmer. I'm actually a biomedical engineer. So I joined her 12 years ago. Um, but we, you know, the business was established in 1818. Wow. So from the, since the 1700s, our family has been here on the property that we are. And in each generation, the, you know, to be a multi-generational farmer, probably business owner, you have to have some uh, invention or be able to pivot during the times. And each of our four, four 
ancestors, parents had to pivot in that paradigm because there's nothing steady when you talk about 200 years. That would be silly, right? What would we be doing? I mean, if we didn't change with the times, we wouldn't be, we're not the original farm that we used to be, right? Now, in 1972, my mother uh, took over the farm. And so it's been women owned since 1972. Wow. We haven't really even thought about or acknowledged, but recently a lot of people have been asking us about that. Um, we never even thought too much about it, but it is apparently very interesting <laughs> to people. It is. <laughs> so, um, when Amy took the farm, um, when she came back from Cornell University, uh, we were then had a retail market on 9W uh, that was established in 1918. And it has had, it was very successful roadside market on 9W uh, that was uh, originally was a tent where um, it was open 24 hours a day. Yeah, it was open wow. 24 hours a day. When in the cars, it was just when cars were starting to happen, the Roosevelts would come over. And I think that they were getting hot dogs from someplace down in Newburgh and would stop at our, our, our farm market. And that was one of their routines. I mean, it wasn't weekly, but they, it was an outing for them to do that. So... When my mother retired in this succession planning of what farmers have to do, Amy just was not um, interested in the retail market. It, it requires a lot of attention. My mother was very good at it. My grandmother was very good at it, but she wanted to do more food production. Okay. So we did uh, switch over the business to a major fruit production over the years, we became vegetable farmers. Okay. And uh, from conventional farming to organic. I would love to talk a little bit about the history in farming because it's so fascinating to me. Um, we had a, uh, back in the 1800s when it was just uh, horse and buggy, uh, farmers would come off the Milton Turnpike and down and they would, at that time there was bar, there was a, it was called the Milton Exchange. People, there's a corridor that comes down and it was at the docks. And then they would load the barges to the, to the food. But in that, meet, in that whole exchange, there was also the, our farm created um, agricultural solutions to help protect the farmer's crop. Like uh, we were, we distributed the Bordeaux mixture which is just copper, sulfur, and lime, but we would pre-mix it and the wagons would come in and they would fill the wagons up. And that was one of our businesses. We would supply the, what you call modern day pesticides, but it was a pesticide at that time to help protect, spray their, um, uh, you know, but it was all, it was, you know, innovative, you know, because we could do it and we had a production of making it and it's more affordable for the farmer to actually buy it in that system. So it was a service that we provided for the farming community. And then they also did something innovative in the sense that they, when they were spraying their crops and protecting them, 
they had distribution, that they had a central location and they actually piped the pesticides to the fill stations in the various orchards, which definitely can't happen today, but it was very innovative. So because it was very slow with a horse and buggy and how they did it and pumped it and how they took care of it. So they, they created all these innovations. And when it came to the fruit stand in 1918, it was open 24 hours a day and they capitalized being on Route 9W. That was before the throughway. So the um, I remember Leonard Clark, who was 100 years old when he told me, he said, the cars would line miles up to just before they, they would, because we don't know that part of the, the town, but people would come from the city when they had the cars and they would drive up and go to the Catskills to all these like sort of resorts. And each weekend they would come back down. And when they were coming back down, they drive by the stand and they could pick up, they sold things in bushels. They didn't buy three pound bags or no, they really bought bushels and they took them back. So we had a very successful roadside wholesale, wholesale retail through that time period. And they made jams and jellies and every, it, it was really a moment. And then it took off and we ended up building a facility on 9W and we became Milton Packers and we stored people's uh, apples and we packed them. And then we had that retail stand where we made cider on the road and we made cider. People could watch making cider and we had free cider for everybody. They could just come and drink free cider. And we, we started the apple cider donut back then and people would line up for donuts and the, had to put a sign around my dog's uh, Please don't feed me because he got started getting so fat. He's a golden retriever and he would just walk around. And he was getting so fat because everybody would give him donuts and he didn't leave anybody. He didn't eat as many donuts as I would. And it was, you know, the whole um, understanding of what was important then and what how people shop now is just totally different. And when we started to realize what our forte was, was like we did what other people wouldn't do. Roadside marketing became, you know, we wanted Caradonas to be good. So we became specialized in organic agriculture from 1984. Yeah, you know what I wanted to mention in that, because you were doing the, um, the, some historical high points, the one thing that happened in the, on the, in the building that we have right now was that my, grandfather and father, and I believe my uncle, all Cornell graduates, developed the first controlled atmosphere room. The controlled okay. atmosphere, and it, they worked with other farmers in the region maybe, but. No, no, we, we uh, Cornell uh, created this new technique towards, uh, it's called controlled atmosphere. Okay. And the first commercial controlled atmosphere was on our farm. And wow. it's where you seal the apples off. It's now modern agriculture. All apples are stored this way now. But the first one was at our, our location. And it's where you seal the, the room and you change the atmospheric conditions where the, you know, the apple goes to sleep so that it can be fresh for months on end. Yeah, it's- That's why we eat apples that are still crispy in, you know, March. Okay. Yeah, it's a way of, it's the modern 
long-term storage it didn't exist but the, just an interesting point is that the first one in the world was located at our place we have pictures of it um yeah there's there's quite a bit of little bit innovation like you know just, when when the um how about when the the chemical revolution which is also called the green revolution uh of course it was a fantastic moment in agriculture uh because the farmers would spray and keep pests down and the quality of the fruit went from something like a 40 or 50% sellable to 90% uh, sellable or more. And it was so fascinating and so fantastic that our forefathers or whoever, you know which one, they, they, they took our apples across the country and showing what can be done with this modern agriculture, which was based on very pride. They, they really had a lot of pride in the fact that they could have a large, beautiful, perfect fruit because it really, that's not what would happen. There was so much waste before the Green Revolution. And then we understand that, you know, there was negative side effects of that. So in my generation, after you know, Silent Springs, there were many indicators that happened um, that would have you understand that there's some negative effects of this. So my my part in uh, agricultural history is to help transition agriculture into a safer, healthier, using technology and um, focusing on alive systems. Okay recreate healthy soils, which are really important. Like in modern, now where we are, we know very much that an alive soil is very environmentally healthy. Even in our roles, agriculturalists are very important in climate change, actually. We can help reduce the negative effects of mankind through good agricultural practices. And the funny, the good news is that the population is usually about 20 to 40 years late to the game. Okay. Meaning, you know, organic in 1982 didn't really mean much, but it means a lot today, right? So 40 years, 40 years later, people know what organic is. But now that we're in a biotechnical, revolution there's a lot more to learn so it's 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 always a progression so it's what i'm trying to say is like it changes and you have to you have to know what that is i'd love to be able to be more technologically advanced but organic has put me in a little box but i have to be organic because right now i have to stay alive and the consumer wins the game and i can do it but we'll go to the next level soon That'll be the next thing that comes from the farm is <laughs> real eco biological farming with technology. That's healthy. That's been designed for improved soils and nutrition and pest management and disease resistance. People who eat our food uh, are very insistent that it stay organic. Even, which is good because at least it's something they can that they 
can trust or they know. It, it, it's something that it's gives a standard. So with all these different innovative practices, how do you choose which one to implement on your farm? Like what goes into your decision-making on, I'm going to, I'm going to try that. There's a lot to that. There's five or six or 10 of them, but I'll give you three basic ones that we run our farm on and how it guides okay. us. And that is to think of those that haven't been born and to make the world a better place. So those guide you. And then once you get into this philosophy, you um, can see a path and why you would do something. It motivates you to do something that will benefit your community. Just through my agricultural training, I know that ag um, idle land is not good for the local economy. Okay. It's, it's a, a very interesting thing. So what we did was people who had, who had bought the farms to develop into housing, the housing market crashed. So they couldn't develop the land. So we stepped in and turned it back into agriculture. And we knew that for every 50 acres that we developed, it was $1 million would go into the community. So, and it just ended up being that it was a feel good situation for our community. Meaning when people went by and saw lands overgrown with dying apple trees and vines and, you know, it was downer, you know? And when they see the farms, it makes everybody feel good. So you have to just really get to the next level of why you would be motivated to actually take on that job because it's actually pretty hard. The good news was that at that time, we were so successful in marketing that we had so much more demand for our product that we knew we could actually develop these farms and sell it. Okay. So our success is based on that we don't grow anything that we can't sell. So that's been really successful. It was fun to experience that. It's very motivating to the community. And instead of talking about who got divorced and who sold out this, it was more like, oh, wow, what are they doing over there? And look at the tomatoes over here and look how beautiful it looks there. And so I felt like the side effects of doing good work and trying to do the right thing gave an uplifting feeling in the community. And that was really important. So, in, so when I say when you try to do good work or you try to do it for the right reason, good things will come. They may be hard and difficult, but just out of that understanding of doing good work, good things come. Yeah. So we grew. We, 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 we were a large, our family farm was 900 acres of wow. commercial fruit production. And we shrunk it down to 25 acres. Wow. And then we grew it back up to 550. So what, what was your initial thinking behind that? What was the, the plan for that? When you're doing something and pioneering something that's not been done, you can't start big. You have to start small and you have to understand how to do it because you make a lot of mistakes and you lose a lot. So you don't want to lose big. You can lose little and keep gaining. So that's how it starts. Transitions are very difficult times. How are you going to transition, you know, an agricultural understanding without doing it? 
And when you have to do these things, it's kind of unknown territory. So you have to, you know, even my first organic garden was only one acre. Wow. And then it was five acres. And then after four years, it was 10 acres. Then it was 25. And then it was 50. And then it was 75. And then it was 100. And then it was 200. Then it was 300. And now it's 500. Because you can grow, uh, Gail came on board. Her specialty is scaling. She's okay. very, got a very uh, interesting background, life background and work experience. So you can talk to that, Gail. <laughs> That's really great how both of your backgrounds kind of complement each other. Gail, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you've incorporated it into the farm? Oh, sure. Well, first of all, we both grew up on the farm. Okay. And um, Amy was the one that was more focused. And uh, when my father was there, from no, I'm not more focused. I'm, I'm actually just focused on agriculture. Yeah, no, she was more focused on farming. Let's just be okay. really clear. The outdoors, um, <laughs> wanting to drive tractors and, you know, always getting in the truck and uh, be basically, you know, shadowing my father until she was 12 years old. And then she took up the interest and uh, like it was her farm when my father left. So uh, she went to Cornell which was 200 miles west. I went to Boston University, which was 200 miles east. And she went to a rural school campus. I went to a city school. And when, and I mentioned that because it does, she wanted to come back to farm. Even my mother tried to discourage her and she learned things in Cornell that really inspired her to want to come back and do right. And okay, so for me growing up on the farm, there would be a hailstorm and it seemed like the end of the earth, you know, and you know, the, you know, it's like, oh my God, how are we ever going to, and it would make me uncomfortable. And, and for her, it seemed like she, it was more like, now what are we going to do? You know, it's just like, it's natural things that are happening. So she has a response to it. And my response would be, to run away <laughs> and hers would be to hunker down and stay. So I did biomedical engineering and um, I started my career in, uh, in, in hospitals at Mass General Hospital and Brigham and Women's Hospital. And then I had a, a baby and I took off a little while. And then I ended up uh, going to work in corporations so I was hired by a, a high-tech company, uh, Technicon, that were the innovators of blood chemistry analyzers. And I traveled the, around, you know, for example, to Japan many, many times and bought technology and did technology exchange. And in that, um, I was exposed to a lot of senior people. The companies got bought over and then I started working for Bayer like as in bare aspirin, but bare diagnostics. And I got really involved in very big projects like worldwide consolidation, manufacturing, where we closed plants in Argentina and Illinois and this and places like that and, and moved things. So there were very large projects, you know, 
a $21 million project to blah, blah, blah. And I was a project manager. Wow. So I, yeah, so I was exposed to a lot of um, interesting business and uh, understanding how to start up things, how to close things, how to scale things back up, trained in different uh, techniques to do that. And other things that was just one, but you know, that's life in the company. And that's where I stayed for, you know, 20, 25 years. I mean, I did move up here to IBM. Okay. And, and that was because my daughter entered high school and my family here was very helpful to me. I had a lot of traveling that I was doing and Amy's my daughter's second mom. <laughs> and my, we have a very extended family here. My mother was always uh, the, you know, I would leave my daughter at, in her care and Amy all around. So she grew up on the farm like we did. And she's here now, my daughter. And she just had twins. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, two beautiful twins that, twin girls that are, um, you know, the what we call the ninth generation. Do, so, does she have any interest in the farm? Is she working on the farm or? No, well, her husband is working on the farm. He's very, uh, he's really, being very, very helpful to both of us, uh, running a lot of the back end stuff and learning the business, very smart. And my daughter is a, has her PhD in human sexuality. She does have her own um, business, okay. but she, she knows our farming business very well. She's part of the training with her husband and she's very open to uh, what it is that presents itself. You know, it's a rich, story that's different than this but um she would never uh exclude herself from um or in uh, she understands her heritage she takes okay. it very seriously and we don't know what the future is we have right, ideas yeah. but they they come about naturally with with planning but we'll see i think the, the girls were in john deere uh, t-shirts this morning they're only three months <laughs> maybe they'll be joining you soon Amy what made you decide to come back to the farm after attending Cornell but I went to Cornell and I had took this class where it really showed deep problem of what happens when agricultural communities lose their foothold and how people will move out from the towns and demographics around food insecurities around the world and climate change in the sense of where deserts would be and where population and starvation it was it was mind-boggling i mean okay. to be exposed to that kind of problem and it's such a massive problem i said that's what i'm going to do I need to help solve this really big problem because everybody's going to run away from this. This is going to be like the hardest work to take all my energy to figure this out instead of go be an Olympic skier or step being a pharmacist or, you know, whatever everybody thought I should be. I really thought that that would be something really hard to do. And it's a big problem. And I wanted to be a part of the solution to the big problem. I wanted to be a problem solver. And it ended up being that that's exactly what farmers are. They solve problems every day, all day long, you know? So I just made it a game. I just like, this is really fun. This, there's so many problems here. 
that's all. I'm going to chase problems all day long. And that's what I do. And I enjoy it. That's good. And like you said, I think you farmers feel one of the biggest issues in in today's society is is food insecurity. I think it's a really common problem for for a lot of people. That's why our farm donates has donated over a million pounds of food. Wow. Yeah, that's great to hear. Yeah, we really into it. It's a little hard for my men because they know that it's kind of like they have other work to do and we'll say, we're going to go pick that field for the food bank. And they're like, well, you're going to get paid. And I'm like, no, we're just going to pick it and we're going to give it away. And they're like, okay, boss, but you know, we, we have those other things we need to pick today, you know? And so it's been a really fun journey feeding the um, underserved Italian you. It's one of the prideful things that we've ever done, actually. You know, I love it so much, giving food away. People, people really need it. And I think by doing that, it really alleviates stress for people in a time that's so stressful. That yeah. I feel like that's really an invaluable service. Well, yeah, it's, it, the thing is, is that when you, uh, also when you, uh, we have a very uh, diversified market strategy because our aim is to distribute food, healthy food for people to eat. And people have a lot of different lifestyles and eco- economic realities that, that limit that, uh, you have to understand how people get their food. So it, it's mom and pop short stores in neighborhoods. So we, we, we're there because we work with dis- major distributors. So we have, uh, distributor companies who buy our stuff and distribute it into some of the smaller natural food stores or uh, shop rights and stuff like that. They go into your other neighborhood stores. Then we go directly to retail, like we sell to Adams directly, but also to Whole Foods and a few other, um, but it's it's direct to retail. And then there's, the CSA model, which is community supported agriculture, and they pay in advance that helps the farm and okay. give them high value food all through the year and on, on a week and they share it amongst their members. And then there's people who don't like to go shopping or can't go shopping or COVID, for example, and you have food that goes to delivery like Fresh Direct in New York. So that's part of our market is home delivery oh, wow. and then the and then the other is where do other people eat restaurants right so we have a we have a deep relationship with restaurants in the area who are part of the farm to table and also distributors who specialize in restaurants so those are and then what happens where are the underserved really uh to serve whole foods there are imperfect things that are 100 edible and fresh and wonderful that the, is uh, welcomed by the uh, Food Bank of New York and specifically in the Hudson Valley. Although our food does go into the uh, food bank system of New York City too. Okay. So that's that's just part of that. Uh, well, the good news is while we gave up roadside marketing, we still offer almost as community service The on Saturdays during the season, we have um, at the... Sh- at the park on 9W in Milton. Um, part of the Hudson Valley Farmer's Market. Yeah, we have of where Jerry 
brings the food for the community to um, buy. And it's actually very, it's almost like a, it's very reasonably priced, picked that day. And it's, it's a great venue for the community to have fresh vegetables that they can just go. You can count on it every Saturday if you want to get fresh lettuce or greens or tomatoes. Or, you know, so it builds up over the season. It's going to open up this weekend, for instance, and then it's going to start and just have like, we won't have all 400 varieties of the vegetables, but as many as they can bring down there and it's appropriate, we bring down and people can enjoy the cucumbers and eggplant and peppers. And you know, we didn't even get into the uh, veering off into the, the our new business, which is Empire State Growers, where we grow CBD cannabis. It's a very integrated, interwoven agricultural landscape. We have vegetable farmers, fruit farmers, farm to table. In the last 20 years, farm to table has become a real uh, important thing because it educates consumers on trying to get them back to know where your vegetables come from or support local agriculture. And it's meaningful now. It wasn't meaningful. It went, you know, over time things changed, but there is a population who does care where their food comes from. And the restaurants are a very important part of that. And we we took CBD up because it is a crop that was supposed to be uh, advantageous for farmers. And so we were working with a network of farmers here to discuss introducing it. Because one of the things that the Hudson Valley didn't do well in previous generations was to advertise the Hudson Valley region as a region. So we were, were great apple growers. And I, I'll tell you, I just think that our apples taste as good or better than anywhere in the world because of our climate and our soils. And we, generations ago, kind of competed against each other for the market of New York instead of what Washington State did. And they advertised Washington State apples, you know, and they did a big marketing campaign and they really, uh, won the market or they got varieties out there with a lot of money that was state sponsored and um, you know however they did it the university backed state sponsored but we just didn't coordinate such a thing in New York and certainly not in the Hudson Valley so actually we kind of lost our footing okay in in, in the Apple region and we learned from that and Amy is a very uh, interconnected supportive in agriculture and agriculture development. And we do work together in this landscape. I mean, we were down, uh, we work with the uh, Buttermilk Falls and help with their garden sometime or definitely supply vegetables to them. Nice. And, and, and we have those relationships. So the CBD for us was just an extension of this uh, keeping agriculture alive and vibrant in the Hudson Valley. It has turned out to be more of a challenge, but it'll straighten itself out. It's an industry plagued with a lot of misunderstanding. Okay. So eventually it will come around to be something that uh, people can just have tea in their home and drink it because it was wrongly put into the, you know, under the ground. And now it's back out in the open and people can just drink tea. <laughs> sip it all day long because it's good for you. Now, I'm not, you know, this, 
we're growing CBD, which is not THC, but that's a whole other story. And we can deal with that one another time. <laughs> sure. So if there's one thing that you want your, your consumer to understand about your, your hemp crops, what would it be to clear up any misconceptions? That people should care where their CBD comes from. And it is very, very, the, this, there's a lot of CBD on the market. It's been going on for years. And there's a lot of CBD that was mislabeled. This is okay. why I believe in regulations. That, you know, there's a lot of people in our area that, that are anti-regulation and they associate it with a government control. But what we fail to realize is as a society, these regulations are here to uh, uh, protect us. And, um, and it's no different than, you know, you know, many other things. And I think it's important that people uh, through regulation can feel comfortable that what they're buying on the shelf is what is in the bottle. That's just how we operate here. And that requires discipline and oversight because otherwise people will sell things and it's not in the bottle. And that's what's been happening. And people have been become fatigue over it. You know, there's a little bit of a consumer fatigue or con consumer confusion. And since, you know, we're operating a local business so that people can have access and um, it might not be for everybody. For example, there are people maybe that it doesn't, their sleep problem is much worse than that. And it doesn't solve their problem because frankly, they're used to pharmaceuticals to solve the problem. And this doesn't operate in the same way. This is about changing lifestyle and just feeling better. And when you get better sleep and feel better, your body starts repairing itself. And I just think that that's what it is. By the way, uh, here's the disclaimer. I didn't believe this. I was a naysayer, quite frankly. Really? Yeah, no, because how could, how could one plant, okay, it's good for Alzheimer's, it's good for autism, it's good for sleep, it's good for pain, it's good for lupus, it's good for, I mean, there was no end to what people <laughs> were saying that was doing it. So I thought, well, that's crazy. And then I fast forward, I say, you know, I'm going to put myself in our retail shop, I moved my office in there. And okay. I heard day after day, people talking about it and coming back and thanking us. And different things, even with pets, a lot of the high anxiety pets, we have um, a small dosage for them. And, you know, people's lives are just improving, um, but everybody has a different experience. So it's a kind of individual journey if you're interested, you know, and I think that a lot of people are interested. And so that's why we're doing it. And that's why we're here. And we have the shop on 9W so that people can just have a little fun with it. Like, Let's relax a little bit. This is not pharmaceutical, you know, entrenched. There's nothing. If I stop taking CBD in the night, maybe the worst that will happen is I'm going to wake up at three o'clock and not be able to go back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thank you for um, giving us this opportunity. Is there other things that you were thinking about talking about? Um, just to wrap it up, do you have any special plans or projects for the farm that you would like to talk with us about today? Just real briefly, I know we only have a few minutes left. Yeah, well, actually, I did speak about uh, the fact that we are growing cannabis. And there's a lot of reasons why we went into cannabis, because it is supposed to be a, a, a crop that's good for farmers. But also why we're doing that is if it's good for farmers, it'll be good for our workers. And we really believe that um, farm workers deserve more than what um, 
what they call a livable wage. They deserve a wage that all essential workers in our society do. They deserve to have a home and a car if they want, and to be able to put their kids through school without worrying about food or healthcare. And that's what all of our workers deserve, and we're not going to stop until that happens. So we're using this as an opportunity to um, secure that place for the essential workers who are farm workers, skilled workers who bring food to your table. So that's that's really where our head is at right now. Of course, THC is legal now. So uh, we are going to grow uh, THC, but we're in the battle now uh, fighting for uh, cannabis to be grown outdoors. Okay. Because uh, the industry is only understands it from the rear view mirror, looking back and saying, oh, everybody's growing it indoors. We can grow really good indoors. Well, we grew it indoors because it was illegal. You couldn't grow it outdoors. <laughs> so, but, but it belongs outdoors because putting this plant indoors is catastrophic for climate okay. change. Terrible. It uses an enormous amount of energy. You don't get the carbon uh, sequestration back into the soil. You're missing all of the, 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 what the sun in this plant can do. There's probably not another plant that we can grow that has a canopy that can do so much for the earth and for humans, for our, li for our lively, livelihood on earth. I mean, we're talking about night and day putting this plant inside versus allowing it to grow outside. It's a fascinating um, story about how this once in a lifetime opportunity to grow a plant that can do so many good things on lots of different levels. So that's kind of where we are focusing, of course, staying in the business of uh, food. And I think Amy's aspirations and um, Amy's aspirations in uh, growing vegetables would be to incorporate the best of practices uh, that include uh, biologicals and things that are not necessarily inside of a certified organic framework. Okay. And so I think that futuristically, I think that those are the, the areas that we're looking for and, and trying to establish the interconnections inside of the Hudson Valley. For last night, for example, we met a couple who moved from New York City and they're doing glamping and farming. So they want to partner with, they, they bought a 50 acre property okay. and they're going to be uh, doing well-financed and they're going to build a glamping and it's wow. going to be farm and glamping. So Amy's going to do their layouts and understand maybe they can do uh, permaculture where there's eating exotic fruits that can be grown here, but more for eating pleasure and stuff like that. So okay. they're going to, they're going to partner up. So I'm just saying the idea is to stay connected to the agricultural community and the innovations that are coming because uh, you don't know what the future is. So you have to keep open-minded and understand how we can stay agricultural and work with the other industries that are here. We have a vibrant restaurant industry that's really kind of new. And now there's glamping. There might be, you know, something else. So you have to keep open to it. 
especially right here in Marlboro, there's so many different farms. Yeah. And I love that we love the, the, the agro-tourism has been great for us because we can send people to other people's farms because we're not really open to the public. It's hard to uh, uh, be a commercial grower in the scale that we're growing and have as many people want to visit our farm and do the, that job. Also right. because of food safety and the need right. to control. So we, you have to almost do one or the other where if you're gonna be an echo tour, which is very, very important for people's education, we're just incredibly supportive of the farmers who are doing agro-tourism, just love them. Great. That's great. Thank you so much for, for letting us interview you today. This was great. This was so interesting. Thank you, really appreciate it. You were certainly flexible in uh, trying to meet us. I think of we course. moved you around a few times. <laughs> That's okay. I realize you guys have a really busy schedule. So whatever we could do to make it a little bit easier for you guys, we were more than happy. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the story of Marlboro, the past, present, and the future.